Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, it was a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. <laughs> okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is somewhat book-related. This is you and me and our respective digital devices. Uh, hi there. My name is Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. I'm here in Los Angeles, California, where it is currently springtime, where it is always currently springtime. How are you today? I hope you're well. Uh, I want to start off with a quick plug. As some of you probably know, the LA Times Festival of Books is happening here in Los Angeles this coming weekend, next weekend, April 20th and 21st, 2013. And to uh, help kick things off, I'm going to be hosting an event here in Los Angeles on Thursday, April 18th. Thursday, April 18th. Uh, very excited about this. The Nervous Breakdown Literary Experience is happening. This is the official live reading series of the thenervousbreakdown.com. And uh, this particular literary experience is going to unfold at Molly Malone's Irish Pub, which uh, is located at 575 South Fairfax Avenue here in Los Angeles. The show starts at 7 p.m., 
and we've got a great lineup. Emily Rapp is going to be there. Who, uh, her new memoir, The Still Point of the Turning World, was published recently and has been uh, all over the place in the news. Uh, Lenore Zion will be reading. Uh, she's the author of My Dead Pets Are Interesting, uh, the Humor Collection, and also the new novel Stupid Children. Uh, she was a recent guest on this program. Jillian Lauren is going to be reading. She's the author of the memoir Some Girls and uh, the novel Pretty. She, too, has been a guest on this program. And then, uh, finally, Rob Roberge will be reading from his new novel, The Cost of Living, which uh, happens to be the April selection of the TNB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, which you should join. So, uh, Rob, I should should add as well, uh, is going to be a guest on this program sometime soon this month. So we have that to look forward to. And uh, Rich Ferguson is going to be performing. He's a spoken word artist here in Los Angeles. Uh, Great, great guy. He's also a poetry editor at the Nervous Breakdown. But if you've never caught his act before, you'll get a chance on Thursday night. And then uh, after the readings, Rob Roberge and his band, The Urinals, will be performing a set. So... I figured I would uh, leak that information. Get it? Uh, Okay, so I'm going to do a few tweets, and then we'll get started with today's program. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. These are some tweets from my personal Twitter account, at Brad Listy, if you would like to uh, follow me there. And uh, I hope you enjoy these tweets. Are you ready? One of those Midwestern dad-type guys in, like, a golf shirt and pleated dockers, but he can play the guitar really well. Seems interesting. I'm gonna eat the fuck out of this kale. A tickle fight to the death would be weird. Imagine you're Johnny Depp and you own your own island and you're worth $500 million and you're lonely and sad on your island in your costume. Seems like Jesus was physically fit. Imagined myself saying, quote, Get that tuna fish out of here in a coked up Al Pacino like manner to the girl eating tuna fish in this coffee shop. How much will you pay me if I say, Is that your kid? A hundred percent deadpan without blinking to the woman breastfeeding publicly over by the fountain. Okay, so uh, there you have it, folks. Some tweeting. And just so you know, just for the record, I did put that up for a vote. I asked people if they wanted me to continue uh, doing that bit, reading tweets on this program, and the response was overwhelmingly affirmative. So I'll try not to overdo it, but I did heed your request, and uh, we'll be reading tweets every now and again. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, 
I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Michelle Orange. Her new essay collection is called This is Running for Your Life. It's now available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. It's a wonderful book. She's a wonderful writer. You should read this thing. And I'm very pleased to have had the chance to uh, speak with her. So, ladies and gentlemen, here she is. This is Michelle Orange. And her new book, One More Time, is called This is Running for Your Life. I'm in Brooklyn. I'm in my apartment and I'm in my bedroom on my bed um, looking at the pile of clothes on my dresser and the open suitcase um, from my return from a trip to Toronto. Okay, so yeah, because we had emailed and you said you were leaving the country. That was to Toronto? Yeah, uh, yeah, less glamorous maybe than <laughs> than leaving the country made it sound, but yeah. yeah, I was just going home to Canada. Okay, so you're Canadian. It's true. Born and raised in Toronto? Uh, born and raised in London, Ontario. Um, moved to Toronto for school. Okay. University, yeah. I was in Toronto a couple of years ago for the, my wife was working at the film festival and I tagged along just because I was curious and... It sounded fun. I'd never been. To, I'd never been to Canada. As crazy as that sounds. Man, there's so many Americans <laughs> I hear that from. I felt and, they, and then they, they say it in that exact tone of voice, like sort of not not enough shame. Actually, I feel in in, no. <laughs> in the disclosure. <laughs> I'm I'm ashamed. I'm I'm deeply ashamed. I'm like, but see, like you know, I have a naturally guilty bearing, so I'm ashamed of every place okay. I've never been. Uh, well, uh, so but you liked it. I loved it. I loved. What it. was your wife doing at the festival? Uh, just talent, you know, booking and, I don't know, wrangling celebrities. That's basically... Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, I get a lot of good stories from her out of it, or I hear a lot of interesting things, but uh, it's not always that fun, fun for her. Uh, yeah. But I remember I went to see uh, the premiere of the Coen Brothers movie, A Serious Man. Like, there was some screening of it, and I think it was the first time that the film had been shown. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I thought I had just seen Citizen Kane. Um, because it was like at the festival and there was like, there were like celebrities in the audience and I was sitting like right behind Tilda Swinton. And it was just like, I felt like very fancy. And then, yeah, uh, you know, how, inc- like the theater audience does something to your experience of a movie. Well, and the festival um, experience too is incredibly heightened. I think that, yeah, that's a common uh feeling you know and especially in toronto where it's just incredibly glitzy but at sundance too it's i actually i think a um critic acquaintance of mine just recently remarked on on this idea that she'd seen you know a a couple of films 
at home in a, in a screening environment in L.A., and then she'd seen the same film screen at Sundance and just re- receive a completely different reception. You know, it's, everyone's ready to receive, like, to be excited, you know, excited to be excited. And so it, it tends to... It, it tends to ramp things up a bit. And well, yeah, I mean, it's like... It's did you like, watch that movie another time after that and, and realize that... It was a little bit flatter, I and mean, I still liked it. I love the Coen brothers. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. everybody loves them, I think, you know, but... Uh, Jeff Dyer hates them. I know that. Oh, really? <laughs> I just read his new book, so I, <laughs> he absolutely despises the Coen brothers. But you know what? That's actually like a good tack to take because nobody despises them. So then <laughs> I know. It's like, it's like his brand. He's a smart guy. <laughs> Right. Um, That's what he's known for, really. Yeah, I just hating the Coen brothers. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I like... Is that some static on your phone? I just got, like, a buzzing sound. Did you hear that? Um, yeah, I did. Okay, well... I um, Yeah, I don't... Uh, I'll just stay very still. Yeah, just do not move a single muscle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds ideal. Don't even blink. Uh, <laughs> but no, you know, I, th- I saw the film and I thought it was like a little bit flatter and not quite as dynamic maybe as I thought when I saw it in the theater, but I still liked it. I mean, you know, it's like, it's better than the, any Coen brothers movie for me is usually better than the average film. So, yeah. Uh, but you're a film critic. You have some background in that, correct? Yeah. I've, uh, I've, uh, written a lot of, of film criticism and film reviews. Okay, and how did you get into that? You studied film. I did. I um, I studied. I was a double major um, English and film um, in university, and then I, I moved to New York in two thousand three to um, get a master's in cinema studies from NYU. Um, and in that program, I met people. I but really, my my main ambition was just to get myself to New York, and school um, was was the best option that I could come up with at the time, but I knew that I loved film, obviously, and studying film, and so that seemed like... I'd been working in Toronto for about four or five years at that point, and I, I was really feeling like I needed to um, change something radical in my life, and so... Um, Why? I, um, I just wasn't... You know, I had a good job. It was a great first job. I was working at a public uh, broadcasting station called TV Ontario, and I was a writer and a producer and doing a lot of uh, online stuff, mostly for for um, the for the for TVO. <laughs> um, and you know, it was a great first job, and I learned a lot. But it just wasn't it it wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And so I hit that moment in my late twenties where I I just uh, my dream was to was to go to NYU as an undergraduate, um, and that didn't happen. Um, why not? So, well, money. <laughs> yeah, my my father is a professor in an Ontario university, and and one of the benefits of his job is that his kids' tuition is paid for. You know, so it was. It wasn't. I didn't have a great case to make for my parents. You know, like free free schooling in Ontario versus you know an ungodly amount of money to send me to the states. So, it's interesting. I want to say I've talked to a couple of Canadian. Um, natives on this show, and it, I feel like I've had like this a similar, exact, like exactly similar situation. Maybe it was. Uh, <laughs> we all want to come to America. <laughs> no, but it was like it was like no, but it was even like closer than that. It was like father was a, an academic wanted oh. to, wanted to go to New York, and, and I think it was like Emily St. John Mandel. 
uh, and Alex Olin. Is that or Oline? I'm forgetting how to pronounce it, but both. Really? Are, yeah, and I don't know. Well, that's I, disappointing. Yeah, I don't know. It's a type, maybe. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, let me change my story. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay, so you finally got to New York and you, you enrolled at NYU in cinema studies. Yeah. With the, and, um, with the idea that you were going to be a critic and that you were going to write film no. criticism? Not at all. Um, the idea was I was just going to get to New York and then figure out what I wanted to do and be. Um, but as it happened in the second year of my program, um, Jim Hoberman, who was then the lead critic at the Village Voice, was was doing a criticism seminar, and um, you know the rest of the program was heavily, you know, theory based and, and history based, and there, it, this was more of a practical sort of writing course. And so I um, applied to to get into that, and you know it was a fabulous. Um, semester, I guess, or two, I don't remember, that we spent together. But anyway, the other kids in that class really did have that ambition. They knew exactly what they wanted to be, and they wanted to be film critics. And so um, one of them, this guy named Matt Singer, who now works at IndieWire, um, he got a job right out of school at IFC, and we'd been in that yeah, we'd been in that class together, and, and um, he remembered me. And, and so when his editor was looking for someone uh, or looking to build up her section on, on the IFC website, he got in touch with me, um, and I was really just struggling to make a living at that point. I'd graduated, and, and so that was the next challenge. So I was ready and willing to do um, anything. I was temping. I was I was all over the place. And so I started writing. Um, I think I did a piece or two for them, and then um, this editor named Stu Van Aristel, who had um, his own film site called The Reeler, got in touch with me um, because of that and because of what I was doing for IFC and, and then we hooked up and I was I was writing for the reeler and then I was editing the review section of the reeler and then the village voice got in touch it was this very it was that's all a period of like three or four months when I look back and it, it, it all you know ties very directly to to Matt Singer um, you know giving me a shot so um, very quickly it seemed like uh, a, a viable way to make money, which was surprising and incredible, and um, B, what the universe seemed to want me to do. <laughs> you know? well, that's, that's what I'm saying. I mean, God, in a, in a span of three or four months, and you know, it, it brings a couple of things to mind. First of all, mm-hmm. like you say, you know, sometimes um, when you're on the right track or, uh, you know, I don't know. There, I don't want to use the word destiny. It sounds too precious or something, but you know what I'm saying. When, you, when you're heading down the right road, usually the world will uh, sometimes have a way of, of meeting you halfway. Mm. Uh, but then it also makes me think of how uh, important personal relationships can, you know, are almost always are when it comes to uh, people's lives and careers. It's like one person makes a call or, you know, and that's, exactly. the, way, that's the way it goes. Well, that's what took my breath away a little bit about that. I mean, this is the, you know, the Canadian perspective on um, the American education system. Uh, it, it sort of hinges on that in a way. You think, well, you pay all that those exorbitant sums of money to meet the people who will, uh, you know, help you do what you want to do in life. And, and um, I don't want to say that's completely true, but certainly looking back, uh, it, it kind of worked out that way for me, you know. Well, I had such a naive view of all of that when I was going into college. I didn't think about any of that. Like I, oh, um, I didn't either. I mean, not yeah. for a second. I never thought to myself like, oh, you know, you go to college. Like that's a good reason to go to a really good school because you'll be hanging out with all these people who are like <laughs> super connected and like influential. Come from these, you know, influential families. I mean, 
I hate to say it, but that matters, you know? I don't know. Apparently it does. It can matter. It shouldn't maybe matter as much as it does, but that seems like... I I feel like there are people, uh, even young people, who have a much more nuanced understanding of that uh, maybe than I even do right now. (laughs) Well, this is... It's a problem, though, right? When When you're, you know, sort of raised you know for it, it sounds like again this is a, an outsider's impression of of um, an american relationship to education it's like you're barely in preschool before all these things are are being um either thought of for you or implanted in you as 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 goals and, and a lot of them have to do with education you know mm, well i mean my like my daughter's two and a half and we had to like go through like a college application process to get her into preschool oh come on i'm not even kidding my wife uh like who is like a Minnesota Scandinavian, like not uh, emotional person, like teared up when she got in. <laughs> oh, two and a half. Yeah, I mean, like this all went down when she was like one. You know, like it was. A, <laughs> and I'm a I'm a public school kid from the Midwest, and so you know it's very that's insane. That's what I think, but you know, you live in Los Angeles, and it's or you know, in any big city, and it's like so. It's the same there as it is here, in that yeah. sense. What are you going to oh, do? Oh, wow. If you care about your kid's education, you know, it's either you go through that song and dance or they get sent to some uh, substandard school that, you know, is going to make you feel bad and probably... Well, that's the serve, thing. You know. The system is just so messed up. Yes, it is. Um, it, needs, it really is. It needs to be fixed. But that's like, I think that's a whole other show. I feel like we could, yeah. we could spend an hour on that. <laughs> Um, so, okay. So let me ask you about criticism because this is something I wrestle with and it sounds to me like you kind of fell into it. I mean, you know, obviously you decided to take the course of your own volition, but it wasn't something that you harbored an ambition for from a young age or anything like that. No. And so, you know, when you sit down professionally in your early, you know, early professional days as a film critic to write criticism... Like, I, did that did that class that you took really inform your understanding of the critic's role and how you approach it, and what it what purpose it serves to like really write like and how to write a negative review and how scathing to be and word choice and you know all these things come into play. And now that you have a book out, I'm sure that you've been on the receiving end of reviews, and so you know how it feels from that perspective as well. Like, how do you conceive of criticism in your role as a critic and you know all that stuff? Well, I have a complicated um, a relationship with with um, critical identity, I guess, uh, be, because I, as you say, I didn't. This wasn't my ambition, and I did sort of back into it. And I still, I don't really think of myself as a critic or a film critic. Um, and that's probably just delusional at this point. But um, because it did wind up for several years there being pretty much all I did. Um, but when I, when I said that the, the universe seemed to want me <laughs> to, to, you know, keep heading in that direction, it, it, I, I didn't entirely agree. You know, I always, I, I really was just trying to make a living and I was very, very lucky to be able to, to do that, um, for a period of time. But I think because I had been writing, um, other kinds of writing, you know, I've been, you know, do, doing other sorts of writing for, in the years leading up to, to, I think my first probably, published film review was like 2006 um i just looked at it as a different another kind of writing i mean the the hoberman course was uh it was pretty technical i mean he he you know he taught us about writing a lead and and he had he had very specific um ideas about how a review should be laid out but it it was 
a lot of, uh, it was almost like a, what I imagine a, a, a fiction workshop would be in a way, just because we'd have to all read each other's stuff, you know, and there'd be exercises and, and we'd have to, you know, I think he sent us, he made us see Spongebob Squarepants one week. <laughs> I love Spongebob. I'm a well, guy. yeah. I I mean, I think the idea was you, because if you are going to be a working critic, and this was really helpful for me ultimately, um, if you're if you're going to be a working critic, you're, you're going to see things that you don't want to see and that you wouldn't choose for yourself. Um, and so the challenge is to uh, be open, first of all, and, and come up with an opinion, come up with something to say, and make it interesting somehow. Um, but, but most of all, just be open. Um, and so th- I, re- I remember that um, very well because I actually really enjoyed the SpongeBob movie. Wow. <laughs> but it's not something I ever would have, you know, obviously gone to, I mean, unless I was probably 18 years old and <laughs> in, in, in an altered state I mean, on, I just, on a, in some sort of altered state yeah i mean i just as a parent you know you sit through any number of cartoons most of which are miserable but spongebob makes me laugh i mean I, yeah i see the appeal and i think it's sort of wacky and funny and you know there's yeah some, there's some heart you know squidworth and i like it <laughs> um so okay so do you have i mean do you did you find yourself uh, feeling pretty natural you know what i'm saying because like i feel like especially if i didn't like something uh, i would feel i guess i you know if it's your job you just have to tell the truth of how you feel but did you ever feel reservations about panning something and how do you measure your tone do you know what i'm saying because that some review like there's different kinds of reviewers some reviewers are really uh scathing you know and don't hold back other reviewers are more measured in terms of how they you know how they pan something how do you do it um, well, I knew, uh, it, yeah, because I'd never given much thought to what my identity as a critic would be, um, I, you know, you know, some critics sort of are known for, for being this way or that way. Or, um, and in the beginning I really, I was spoiled because as I say, when I hooked up with Stu, he was doing his own thing with this site, and, and when, when he made me the reviews editor, I had um, a couple reviewers working under me, but we were really focusing on independent film, um, some bigger films, but I got to choose, basically, what what got reviewed and, and what I saw in particular. And so um, that was ideal, because I, I didn't wind up in a situation too often where I really responded um, poorly to something. But I, I think, I guess... If, to, to try to answer your question, um, when I do have a very negative reaction to something, um, I, I think the challenge is always just to stay true to what your response is and to explore it as best you can without being needlessly um, cruel or flippant or dismissive, you know, um, and and uh, make it, again, make it interesting. I mean, that's the uh, the other job is, is you, you're going to have a reader, and so you have to remember him or her and, and keep them engaged. Keep And I, I think really do think the best way to do that is to is to stay as true as you can to what your experience of watching the movie was, you know? Well, yeah, no, it's like so interesting, not only with film criticism, but re- with any kind of criticism, you know, art, I guess in, in the realm of art criticism for the purposes of, of this conversation. Uh, mm-hmm. But when I, you know, I've thought about this before where, you know, you have somebody who makes a film, they pour in, you know, or they write a novel or an essay collection or whatever it is, and they pour years of their life into it and uh, blood, sweat and tears. And then the reviewer receives the book or goes to a screening of the film. And just like like I was talking about with respect to the Toronto Film Festival and seeing a serious man, like I always think to myself, 
what about the mood of the critic on the day of the screening? <laughs> what, what if what if you go to a screening of a film at two in the afternoon and at eleven in the morning you have a fight with your best friend or you have the flu and you don't feel like doing it or you're hungover? Like all of these different factors can play into a critical response, and it's just the human element and what. And, and at the end of the day, um, your reaction can have an enormous impact on something that, uh, or not an enormous, but a significant impact. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah, but I mean, but you know, a, New, a bad New York Times review can affect oh. how a, a movie opens or something like that. Or... Well, you'd think that, but I'm not sure how true that is. Yeah, I don't at know. Least they would, at least in, in terms of, you know, the, the big ones, the big blockbusters, it doesn't seem to matter. Yeah. I mean, but... I think that Oz movie just got shit can't <laughs> right. darkest, but it like won the whole you know world that weekend um, okay yeah, it was again it had some longevity too it was continuing to perform yeah so i don't know but anyway like my, my i guess my my question is like do you, how do you factor in your emotional world like do, do you ever go into a, a screening saying god i'm in a shitty mood today i have to make sure that i really give myself some time before i re you know i write this and officially react yeah i mean um some of my best uh, experiences in, in, in watching a movie as, as a critic is, is, is going in, you know, just feeling terrible um, or not in the mood at all and somehow being lifted out of that by a film, and unexpectedly even. There, there have been some, well, I'll try to think of some, but there, there have been movies um, that I wasn't looking forward to seeing at all that, that completely won me over um, you, you try to, you, I mean, yeah, that, that really is just part of the job. You do, it's your job um, to sort of clear your palate and be fair, you know, and, and be open. Um, and I think in terms of, uh, again, with the, having a negative reaction to, to a film, it's important not to be too, not to be definitive, not to be, I guess, I don't know if qualitative is the word, but not to, not to say this is a, I mean, sometimes you might want to say this is just a bad movie, um, but to lean more towards, like, this was my experience of watching this movie. And, um, you know, you might feel the same, you might feel differently, but I've tried to articulate it, express it as clearly as I could. And then what about critics that you really like? I mean, do you have heroes? And then I, I hate to ask you this question because these are the kinds of questions I can never answer myself. But, like, <laughs> what are some favorite films? I mean, especially of recent uh, times. You know? <laughs> I'm terrible at that question. Um, I, think it, I think everybody is. It's like, yeah, what's, it's like, I just, what's your like, favorite? Everything just what's, went out of my head. Right. I know. But what about critics? Like, did you read Pauline Kael? Were you reading specific critics for clues on how to do it well? You must have some references, right? Um. I wish I'd read more Pauline Kael. I wish we'd been, uh, I wish you'd been assigned more Pauline Kael in school, actually. That's something that I've thought about. You don't see her a lot at least in the academic world, um, and I, I, I don't think that that's right. Um, uh, let's that surprises see. me. That actually surprises me. I would think she would be taught, like, pretty heavily. No. Hmm. I mean, not in my, I mean, I shouldn't, not in my experience, you know, and uh, I remember uh, remarking on that to um, my colleague, Stephanie Zaharik, who at Movie Line, when we were working together, because I think she knew Pauline um, for a period of time, and she sort of acknowledged it as, as, a, as, as a known sort of thing. Um, she doesn't get the academic uh, recognition that, that perhaps she should. Um, but Stephanie's someone that I, I read for years at Salon and, and really admired. Um, 
someone like, I mean, A.O. Scott is so smooth. I, I, I admire different things about different critics, you know, and having done it for a while, I, I can, I can, uh, I feel like I have a better sense of, of what they're, what they're, or a different sense of what they're really great at. A.O. Scott seems to be able to, he's so level-headed and so cool and yet so consistent um, in his prose. Um, and, and, and I can see, or at least I have a sense of when, when he might not have entirely liked a film, but he liked enough of it to want to be generous. Um, and I feel like I can see that happening with him and I, I admire that. I, I, he, he does a sort of dance around certain films that that might frustrate certain people. And it even frustrates me at times. It's just sort of like, so (laughs) did you like that or did you not like it? But I'm not sure the job of of a critic is necessarily to, to, to explain that. Um, you know, is it good or is it bad? Like I said, like it's, it, it's, it's, it should be more than that. Yeah. Like I always find it, what I find frustrating, especially in literary reviews, but it's the same thing, I guess, to an extent with film reviews is that almost every literary review that I read follows the same pattern, it, especially if, you know, it's, it's, I would say the, like the overwhelming majority are, this is a, a pretty good book and there are some things that I liked about it and the author has written some beautiful sentences and then like There's the, a lot to like in this book. Yeah. <laughs> that then, sentence, if I ever see that, I just like stop right. reading. Yeah, and then like there's like the last and it's always like you know, the last two or three paragraphs where the uh reviewer goes, But there are some problems with this book and it's just like, Okay, dude, like, you know, I don't know. It's just if I find it really meaningless a lot of the time. Oh, it doesn't feel honest, does it? It yeah, it just feels uh, it feels like they're protecting themselves in case their views are wrong. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, I didn't, yes. re- I, you know, I liked it, but I also understand that there are some problems with it. So you can't, you know, you, if you read it and found problems with it, you can't tell me that I'm an idiot for not pointing them out or I don't know. It feels like right. it feels self-protective and it feels dissatisfying to me as a reader and unhelpful, you know? Yes, I do know. Um, okay, so uh, you are the child of ac- an academic father. Is your mother an academic as well? No, um, my mother was a businesswoman for many years. Um, she went back to get her MBA when I was uh, little. Is she, and is, she, is she still with us or no? Yes. Oh, she is. Okay. <laughs> oh good, good lord. Oh, I don't know. You, <laughs> yes. No, I know. Why would you know that? Yeah, but... <laughs> your, your voice dropped an octave, and you like, and, and then it was like you you were using the past tense. So I had to. <laughs> Um, but I, no, I gotta, well, she's retired. My both my parents have retired. So. Okay. But you're the you know I always find that children of academics tend to be really smart and like reading you, and reading about you, um, you, you're pretty brainy. You know, kind of intimidatingly so to me. So like, do you feel like were you kind of a brainy child? Is this something you did you always have a sense that you were going to be a writer? You know, what were you like when you were growing up? Um. I often want to ask my parents what I was like when I was growing up. I don't know what I was. I think I was, uh, I was into, yeah, I, I, I got, you know, good grade. I was really into being, I was into being smart. I don't know how smart I was, um, but I was really into getting good grades and being a good student. Um, when I was very young, I mean, I know my dad taught me to read very early on and I loved reading and I loved language. Um, and then I sort of became this, academic dervish that just wanted to um get the best grades and 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 be the best at everything um but also are you competitive um i can be (laughs) i like to keep it uh i don't i don't like to show that so much (laughs) but i think i have a real i certainly did back then um um yeah but it's sort of I, i just have always had this sense that it's 
you don't want to let people know how competitive you are. That wouldn't be. Well, you know, I think back elegant. to my, I think back to myself when I, cause I moved right when I was like uh, 12 years old and I was in junior high, just starting out. And I just had no identity. Like I wasn't a great athlete though. I could play a little bit and I didn't know anybody. Like the only thing for me to do was be smart. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> it's not just because like, you know, I, I think that the identity element of getting good grades and, and being bookish or whatever is left out of it. Like, I think for people, a lot of people who go that route, it's just because they want to be good at something. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I felt. Yeah, I wasn't really good at anything else. <laughs> yeah, I was like, shit, I better, might as well like read, the, read this book and like write a good essay or something, you know? But, <laughs> right. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's probably partly true for me, at least. I, you know, I'd get the, I just remember they'd, at my elementary school, they'd give out, like, awards at the end of the year, and they'd have the academic award, and it became my thing. Like, I would win it every year, you know, and then in June, they'd they'd have this assembly, and and, um, that was, like, my thing, and I couldn't imagine, you know, what I I thought I'd just dissolve if one year I didn't win it you know <laughs> like who would i be if i didn't win the award again this year um did you win it every time i won it every time except for grade five which was yeah it was a killer damn i still have not forgiven that teacher <laughs> <laughs> it was it was really hard so um, were you a nerd yeah um i i wouldn't I mean, I was sort of nerdy, but but I also always had a lot of friends, um, yeah, and had a had a pretty well-rounded life. Um, so, yeah, I I think it was just more about if I could maintain that sense of myself and not make a big deal about it. You know, not not uh, I'm, I was definitely a teacher's pet, um, and and I know, yeah, I got teased a lot um, in that way, but. But I mean, hey, you know, you're a star people. You can't help it if you. you know. <laughs> I can't help it if they like me. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I like to please adults very much when I was a kid. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of writers are that way. I mean, you know, <laughs> here's the thing. I think I talked to some writers. There are some, like, a few writers that I've spoken with on this show who are genuinely outsidery nerds to the extreme. Mm hmm. But most of the writers that I talked to uh, were bookish and loved to get the gold star, you know, and, <laughs> uh, you know, and then, but also I think we're better socially than writers are maybe popularly perceived to be like <laughs> writers. I think a lot of writers often are able to move well or at least be inoffensive among various social orders, if that makes any sense. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't know. Yeah. I yeah, think, I think that's more common than the the other thing that I was describing. You know, where people are just like literally like you know hiding in an attic writing by right. themselves or whatever. You know, no, those are the like the science and the math kids. Yeah. <laughs> those aren't writers, <laughs> not the artists. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, did you? I mean, were you writing as a child? Like, were you writing? No, in, no, journaling, not really. Bad well, poetry. <laughs> yes. I was journaling and there was bad poetry. Um, but yeah, like uh, I remember taking a, getting into some sort of writing course when I was a kid, some special course that got like bussed out to another location, you know, once a week or something. And, and I knew it was something that I, I gravitated towards, but I was also, I was a sort of divided 
kid in that I, 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 as I got a little older, I, I felt this need. I wanted to be a performer in some way, but again, I was, I didn't have any talent <laughs> for performing in the, in the venues that I don't, that seemed more intuitive, I guess, than writing. Um, and then like what you wanted to be like a, like a actor or something or a singer. Yeah. I mean, that was my first, uh, the first thing I remember telling my father I wanted to be was an actor. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, did you do the school plays or anything like that? Um, in high school, I did. I, I was. I, I'd always wind up being sort of behind. I was a, more of a drama geek in high school. I took it all throughout high school, and I'd be involved in the plays. But I'd always and I'd audition, but I'd always um, lose my nerve. You know, if, if I, I I'd get a call back, you know, and I just wouldn't go. Like I, I didn't. I didn't have the obviously didn't have the sort of temperament. I don't think to actually. Um, so I had I had confused performing ambitions <laughs> that I, I think clarified into the idea of, of being a writer over time over a lot of time. I think I sort of have that too. I mean, I'm doing a podcast, so it's like kind of mm. it's kind of performative, but I'm hiding in my apartment. You know, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. If you could do it on your terms yeah. and just figure out what those terms are, I don't and have, everything would be great. Yeah, and I don't have to see anybody. I can just cloister myself and you know. <laughs> Uh, and yet be a part of the world and perform. Yeah, I think so. You know, but I like being on stage. Like I just, you know, I, I remember the kids in high school who were super drama, uh, you know, super drama geeks or whatever. Mm. And I remember being at parties where they were there and they would honestly sit around and sing and like, look, I, mean, I remember they would like sing, <laughs> they would sing like, you know, show tunes that they were studying and like look each other in the eye and smile. And like, I remember <laughs> Like I can't, I cannot. And you're access. like you knew, like I can't. There's just no way. No, I could not access at that level. It's also embarrassing, right? Yeah, very hugely. Like still, yeah. still is to, to I think have a very about. high embarrassment quotient. I was actually thinking the other day. I don't know why. Of this, there was you know my school was the same. The actor kids, and they were all. I took classes with them, and um, you know we were in the same drama classes and and worked on the same plays, but. Um, there just seemed this gulf between us, and one of them, one of the more flamboyantly actorly, one of one of ones of them um, was also in my religion class. We had to take religion because I went to Catholic school, um, and I remember he had this bright idea. We had to do a talk or something as part of our. Anyway, he wanted to sing a song. He wanted to sing R.E.M.'s The End of the World as We Know It for his assignment. And he asked me if I would sing it with him. <laughs> and I remember being so completely flattered and so completely certain that there's no way, like wanting to be able to do it, but knowing that there was no way I would ever be able to do that. <laughs> that, was my, uh, that was my senior class song. That was, what, that was the song that played as like we walked out of the auditorium at the end of graduation or whatever. <laughs> Oh, yeah. that's very cynical. Yeah, that was it. And then, like, <laughs> I want to say, and then, but even worse was that our prom theme song, which we actually voted on, uh, and which I was very, for some reason, I was just like, this is the most absurd choice ever, but it was Wish You Were Here. <laughs> so, like, on prom photos, it said Wish You Were Here, and it was like, that's the dumbest prom. First of all, Pink Floyd <laughs> is a prom theme. But it was like we we were there, and I don't. Know. You were. You, I mean, weren't you? Yeah, I, mean, I was. I was very drunk at my prom. Was it like a like a memo to your future self, like I or don't what? No, it was just a bad. It was just you know idiot high schoolers deciding that it would be funny to have a Pink Floyd song as their prom theme. But yeah, well, um, mine was the best was yet to, the best is yet to come. <laughs> I'm afraid, which is a Brian Adams song. Yeah, uh, Canada, Canada's own Canada's own <laughs> Brian Adams. Who I, you know, my sister, I'll never forget, used to have posters of him all over her, you know. She, <laughs> she did? 
Oh my God, cuts like a knife. I knew all those. Uh, you know. <laughs> but it hurts so good. Yes. She was hugely big. Because, like, you know, this is the 80s. It was like Summer of 69, Cuts Like a Knife, um, yeah. Somebody. I know all those songs. Wow. Yeah, he was big in our household in Milwaukee. I never thought of him as a pinup, really. Yeah, I mean, he had kind of bad skin. I mean, not to rip on Brian Adams or bad skin. But, <laughs> but there it is. There it is. Uh, so let's talk about the book. Because, okay. uh, first of all, you know, getting an essay collection published by FSG... It seems like an impressive achievement. It's hard, you know, it's hard enough to sell um, a memoir uh, or a novel or whatever, but it's like collections, whether it's a collection of short stories or a collection of essays, it seems like it's even more difficult, uh, let alone to get published by such a great house. So uh, like, how did it all happen? Um, it happened, yeah, that's, well, I think a big part of, well, it happened re- really the the biggest part of it was that I was looking for uh, looking to broaden um, you know my horizons as a writer I guess and and really feeling that sense of of uh, having spent three or four or five years working almost exclusively writing about film and and thinking like um, I'm not sure this is this is what I want to be doing forever um, and so when Steve Elliott started up the Rumpus. Um, he'd asked me to contribute some stuff here and there. And so I think it was the middle of the recession and, and I, a lot of my work had dried up. And so I had some extra time and I started writing things for him. Um, and I'd also been trying to, uh, break into different, you know, break into the, the publications that you're supposed to break into, like the New York times or whatever. And, and so at the same time as I'd, I'd done, I think I had my first piece in the times and I was writing something for the nation and I was writing stuff for the rumpus and it was the rumpus stuff that seemed to, uh, that people were responding to, you know, in the way that you hope people will respond to the things that you write. And so, you know, I, I, I different editors were contacting me here and there and, and even my friends were saying to me like, you should, you should keep doing this, you know, this stuff that you're doing over here. And so that's really the moment where I thought, uh, well, Maybe I'll try to do that. And so what was, I started the, what, what was the diff, like the differentiating factor about the stuff that you were writing at the rumpus? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Was it more personal? Yeah. It maybe a little more personal, but it was, they were essays, you know, they were, it wasn't, um, they weren't re- reviews. Obviously. Maybe it, they were sort of critical, but, but it really just was whatever, you know, had kept me up the night before thinking about, I could write about that, you know, um, and so there was a freedom to it, I think, especially as someone who'd been on the job as a writer for, for a while, that I re- was rediscovering. Because, you know, before I moved to New York, I, I wrote stuff for the McSweeney site, you know, for years. And, and that was stuff I all wrote at my day job, you know, when I, it, it just sprang from a, um, you know, this is what I feel like writing right now. And I, I feel like I lost touch with that a little bit over the years you know, just trying to support myself. Um, and so it, I guess I was just getting back in touch with what I really wanted to think about and be thinking about and, and write about. Um, yeah, so that was the big difference. So did, and did the collection, um, did you sell the full collection to FSG or did you sell the idea of a full collection? Cause it, I was reading some stuff online with you, like interviews or whatever. And it sounded like, did they finance some of the trips that you did or were those self-financed? <laughs> 
Well, um, they were self-financed. I mean, I had a, a small advance, but, um, you know, I, I, I used that to, to take these trips. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. So, um, so it wasn't like you went to your editor and was like, I really want to go to Beirut. And he was like, sure. <laughs> no, I'd actually gone to, yeah, I went to Beirut years before. Like that, that's, I think four of them had already been written, although they were all sort of heavily reworked for the book. And, and so what I did was I wound up, uh, you know, coming up with a kind of proposal type thing um, and saying, here's what I have and here's what I want to do. Um, and, and how yeah. would you, how would you, dis- I mean, it's like a notorious, you know, it's, it's understandably difficult to, uh, encapsulate a collection of 10 essays and to figure out what the common thread is. But I'm sure you've done enough press for it by now that you've figured out an elevator pitch. Like, what is, what is the book about? What are you, what's the through line? Um, <laughs> you would think that I, I by now. You're, you're, um, you're silently hating me right now. <laughs> you know, there are 10 essays. I, I'd say um, broadly defined as, as cultural criticism, um, like what I've said that, that I think probably gets closest to it is that I wanted to spend some time trying to identify a predicament um, that that had something to do with with uh, you know modern life and and um, Western culture, I guess, um, and just come at it from a bunch of different angles. Some of them more personal, some of them less personal, and and explore it in different. Uh, forums, um, but but uh, yeah, I'm really terrible. At- <laughs> no, me too. I just, I'm sitting here just feeling bad that I asked you that. But- <laughs> you can imagine my meetings with like editors, like <laughs> yeah, that was really the worst part because because it really is this thing, especially when you haven't done it yet, when you're trying to explain to people. I know I can do it, and I know it might be really cool, but I don't know how to tell you what it is. But I mean, and I mean, like this might be a relevant question: is when you're trying to get a collection of essays published, which I'm sure plenty of people listening, you know, I'm sure they fall into that category, either Mm. in in an immediate sense or in a you know future sense. Is it important for from an editorial perspective to have like a really explicit sense of cohesion because? You know, you, I've read some collections. Like maybe you can draw some connections between the essays, but if you have ten really great essays that are really disparate in terms of their concerns, that can still be a great read. You know, but uh, do, yeah. do, do are publishers looking? Did, did you have any sense of publishers really wanting something that, um, you know, had a overall cohesion? Yes, I mean that was probably my main sense. It was um, from almost everyone um, that I met with or talked to about it. And even um, when I first met with um, the people at FSG, it was, uh, they were just starting up this new imprint, the paperback originals. And so they were, um, you know, maybe a little more open to, their mandate was sort of to look for for new and and original and maybe unexpected things and unexpected formats. Um, But they still, and, and I wanted this as well, it wasn't to be because most of them were going to be written for the book. It wasn't to be a collected um, selection of, of random essays. It, we wanted there to be um, a theme. I just wanted the freedom to um, define the theme and and fit things into it the way that I wanted. It didn't have to be. It didn't have to be obvious. I guess is is, is the word. Um, but I they and and it was amazing. I mean, I think I just really got lucky they just trusted me um to to do that in fact um 
a couple of the essays that I wound up writing weren't in the proposal. I sort of um, changed it after after we we signed the contract or whatever. Um, and then once I got a sense that they really were going to let me do what I wanted to do, I thought, well, what I'd really love to do, because and also because once you find the people that you're going to work with, a lot of this, the process is so nebulous in a lot of ways. I mean, I'd, I'd met with a few other editors and, and, and they got me rethinking the entire thing, you know, like, well, you know, what if you just do it this way? And I think, God, what if I just do it that way? <laughs> you know, but, but the FSU people were the ones who, who said, you know, what if you do exactly what you want to do? And and then it was like, well, what if I do exactly what I want to do? And just just thinking that through a little bit more, I thought, um, well, I want to go to Honolulu. <laughs> okay, well, that's actually I'm glad, I'm glad you bring that up because I wanted to ask you about that uh, in the context of you know conceiving of an essay. Like you know, I think from a like a thirty thousand foot perspective or whatever. You wanted to go to, and forgive me for forgetting the exact name of the uh, meeting that you were going to in Honolulu of the American mm-hmm. Psychiatric. Ameri- yeah, American Psychiatric Association. So okay, so you start there. You say, "I want to go to this meeting of the American Psychiatric Association, where they are going to be uh, defining or redefining what constitutes mental illness in our society." Correct. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, well, yeah, they have an annual conference, and it, at this one, I knew that the, a lot of focus would be on the DSM-5 um, revision that they're that they're. What's they the going D- what through. does DSM stand for? The DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of uh, Mental Disorders. And you're into that? Like you were into that? Like just kind of like as a fa- <laughs> as a fan? <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm a fan, uh, yeah, a longtime fan of the DSM. <laughs> I sort of have every edition uh, signed. Autograph, autograph yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and in its original um, dust cover. No, it's. It, I definitely have been following, you know, there's a lot of controversy surrounding the, the revision that's the, the, been ongoing for almost upwards of a decade now, um, you know, because they're, they're excising certain things, introducing new things, and really... Um, um, determining new, new, and defining. Well, they wouldn't say defining, but but com- coming up with with new concepts of of what's normal and what's not. You know, and so there's a lot of interest entrenched in 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 um, in that subject. And so it just seemed like all sorts of things to think about. Have you battled mental illness personally? Um. What do you mean? Like, have I? I've never been diagnosed with a mental disorder, but I think I've, I've probably, yeah. I mean, maybe. No, I don't know. <laughs> like, like crippling depression, OCD, anything like. Where no, you can... no. I mean, I yeah. It's it's it's. I think I've gone through periods of of of. I don't know if you would call it clinical depression, but I think I've been through periods of depression for sure. Yeah, I think most of us have, and it's hard to like. That's the thing. It's hard to like grade it out. Like, is this yeah. is this like a medical condition? I guess it's always a medical condition to some extent, depending on who you're talking to. But like, it's one thing to feel blue and to be like in sort of a bummer for a month or two. It's another thing to like not be able to get out of bed. Well, uh, once I'd seen um, what my grandmother went through with her depression, um, yeah, that distinction became that much more clear to me. She was. 
very, very seriously depressed, and it wasn't like anything I'd ever seen or certainly had not experienced before. Right. So there's different. There's, it's, it's a it's a matter of scale. Yeah. So okay, and, and that fueled your interest in the DSM and in going to this conference and, and into the whole subject, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. So um, to kind of finish the question, I mm-hmm. think that what I find when I read great essays and my favorite essayists. Uh, there tends to be an element of surprise, not only for me, and, it's, and it goes hand in hand. It's like a surprise for the reader, but it's also a surprise for the author because you set out to do one thing or to learn one thing and you wind up learning another thing. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. like the, process, the investigative process for you when you went to Honolulu takes some different turns. Like, can you talk, mm-hmm. a, little, talk, talk a little bit about, you know, like especially when you're traveling or you're going to some event to cover it and to essay about it. And then, you know, things happen on the ground and perceptions change and intent changes and the result reflects that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'd, well, with that one in particular, I'd, I, I'd really just gone with the idea that I wanted to learn, you know, um, I, and ob- observe um, and so, well, it's two different things. I mean, my experience there was one thing, and then the experience of actually sitting down to write the essay was, was a different experience. Um, and I'd say in the writing of it, um, you know, like I said, I, there's also an essay about my grandmother, and, and she had um, um, just passed away recently when I started writing um, the Honolulu essay, and you know, I, I think I I, I felt um, sort of. I think what what I what I wound up in the writing of it discovering was, or feeling like I needed to explore was was how personal a lot of these issues are, and and why that makes them that much more important um, and uh, sort of frightening and influential, and so I felt like I needed to sort of recontextualize my own experiences with, with dark periods, um, in my life and, and bring them in a little bit, um, just to, to broaden the essay a bit, I guess. Does it feel, okay. Do you find that, I mean, do you have to, I mean, cause I think it's interesting when an essayist brings his or her own personal experience into, um, what starts out as like, you know, their own personal history, even into what starts out as like an investigative piece. And then suddenly suddenly, like the, the author discovers how much, you know, personal relevance there is, despite the fact that it, you know, it began as this external exploration, you know? (laughs) So do you have to, I mean, you know, are you somebody who feels comfortable going there or was it something you had to push yourself to do? Um, in that essay, it, it wasn't something I, I, well, my experience in a couple of points in, in writing the book was it would come out very naturally, and then I would think, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, do I really... Like, it, it would almost be... Um, once it had come out, I felt like, well, it came out, so I can't really take it back. I, I'd feel like there was something uh, natural about it, and and so I would try not to second-guess. Yeah, but you also don't want to like. I mean, I go through this with the podcast where like you don't want to like intrude too much on the subject matter with your own personal stuff. <laughs> right, right. No, of course. And so, yeah, it's. A, I think I. I mean, I tried to follow 
my instincts as best I could. Um, and I'm not someone, I'm, I'm not terribly prone to um, disclosure, I guess. It's certainly not in my life. But in writing, um, I don't know. It's a different feeling. And then so what about like conceiving of essays, uh, you know, in the beginning stages? Like how do these things occur to you? Can you talk a little bit about the process of figuring out like, okay, this is it. I'm going to write about this. And do you know what I'm saying? Like how fully, yeah. how fully formed does it, does the idea come to you? And, or is it something that like you have some sort of itch that you need to scratch and then you start following it and then suddenly it takes a left turn and then a right turn and then becomes, you know what I'm saying? Like how does it, yeah. how does it work? Well, for me, it works any number of different ways, but I, I was just, when you were talking, I was thinking about how this morning I complained to a friend, I'm just trying to work on a new essay now and I've, I'm reaching the point where I, I, I've been taking essay. I mean, I've been taking notes for um, weeks, you know, and I'm trying to push myself or, or, or determine where the line is between when I stop taking notes and actually start writing the essay. Um, I'm a big <laughs> note taker, uh, so I can spend you know weeks or months just compiling, rearranging, you know, reordering um, notes. Um, and during that time, I feel, you know, something start to come together in my mind or, or in my notebook. Um, and then I get to the point where like, you really have to sit down and start writing today. And so, um, and just start writing from there and, and see what happens and, and hopefully, you know, somewhere in between that period. Um, I don't often sit down and, and structure or, or set out, you know, um, uh, um, an outline. Um, so usually it's either that or the alternate scenario being, um, yeah, let's just sit down and see what happens. And wow, you know, I didn't expect that to <laughs> come out, but I guess I, I should follow it or, um, and I'll, of course there's a, like a, a heavy, heavy amount of revising and, and going over and finding what the real subject is. Um, once you have a first draft, my first drafts are usually uniformly, um, terrible. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. But, I mean, yeah. you, you're, but I mean like, and it's also nice to hear like how much note taking and preparation you do because, um, there's a density and I mean that in the best possible way, like to, um, or like an erudition maybe is an, a nicer term, you know, density sounds like. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Someone said density to me a couple of weeks ago and I got really offended. <laughs> <Right>. no, <laughs> I, I want to be dense. No, it just means there's a lot there and it means <laughs> that, that there's a, it feels like the, it feels deeply rooted and it feels like you've done your homework and it would depress me if you just had all that packed in your head and it just, sort of Oh no, yeah. no, no. Okay. But that's, but that's the thing. It's good for people to hear that because I think when, yeah. when the reading is easy and as delightful as it is in your book, like, I think it can trick people into thinking like, oh my God, she's just a super genius and, you know. No. No. <laughs> I'm not even uh, like a normal uh, average genius. Um, no, I just, it, yeah, that's definitely part of it for me. And it's it's because any, I, I feel like all writers are intimidated by <laughs> the act of writing. It's a, it's a scary, scary thing. And the note, the note taking process for me is, is uh, calming. <laughs> soothing slightly. I, I feel like I'm working even though I might not be, you know, getting words on the page. Um, yeah, that's a very, very big part of it for me. Well, and it's Probably hard. more than time-wise than, than the writing, the time I spend writing is, is just a lot of preparation and feeling, just taking things in, taking things in and, 
and then trying to trying to um, you know distill and ferment and and draw something out of that. Are you are you using the internet primarily for your research? Um, well, it depends. I mean, certain things, you know, facts and figures are, are, are um, certain things, but a, a lot of, I mean, I have like a stack of library books on my bed table right now, um, just reading the right books and not even books that it might, are, you're going to draw from directly, just books that, you know, might help you, inspire you in some way. Like what? Like what's on, can you see your nightstand? Do you, do you mind sharing a couple of titles? <laughs> Um, I have a bunch of uh, letters and journals of Virginia Woolf right now on my bedside table, um, but I'm also reading Light Years by James Salter and this amazing book called Picture by Lillian Ross. Um, her, the Ross is a nonfiction book. Um, she spent, I don't know how long, a year, a year and a half on the set of The Red Badge of Courage, this John Huston movie in 1952, um, and just basically wrote a book about how a movie got made, you know, in, in, in a studio movie in, in that period. Um, and she, she wrote for the New York, this is Lillian Ross of the New York. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sort of, um, fabulously observational, um, and, uh, just incredibly detailed. I can see you being sort of a Lillian Ross figure, like in terms of, <laughs> wouldn't that be nice? Like, you know, <laughs> well, I, w- I mean, she, she just has this uh, incredible, um, I don't know, I guess she, I, you just wonder how she got all of it down, you know, like that's what what I marvel at. Um, yeah, that's a, actually that brings up an interesting point. Like when you're on the ground, uh, you know, when you're traveling somewhere for the purposes of writing uh, for work, like mm-hmm. are you, do you have your little notebook in hand at all times? Are you talking into a digital voice recorder? Are you... Um, like, notebook mostly um unless i'm interviewing someone i'll i'll have a a recorder but yeah i don't i don't talk to myself and and on recorders or anything like that it's just <laughs> mostly well no some writers do that it's like yeah. uh, get this idea down no i don't do that but um i do i just take a lot of notes yeah i want to be that guy who always has like a little moleskin in his back pocket but i don't <laughs> My friend Steve Elliott is like that. It's sort of, it's almost a, no, it's not, it's fine. It's a, but it's a little, it's like, oh, you're that writer with the little moleskin. With the moleskin, the writer with the moleskin. And then you say something and then he bends over and scribbles it down and you're like, can't we just have a conversation without like generating material for you? Uh, yeah, I'm not on the record here. <laughs> exactly. No, you're always on the record. <laughs> wow. So, okay. So, you know, what are you doing now? Like this book has come out. Please tell me that, uh, you know, a book of this quality, the essays are so uh, robust, which is a b- also a better word than dense. <laughs> but, husky. They're husky. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're, big, they're, big, <laughs> they're big boned. They're big boned, yeah. Uh. <laughs> uh, but no, but please tell me that, like, are magazine assignments coming in now that you've published this book, or was that happening prior to publication? Like, what do you... Like how how are you trying to carve out a career? Like do you do you feel like the do you feel like <laughs> a the, career? I don't know. Do you feel like the essay? Because this is the thing. Like I love essays, and like I wish, and I know how hard it is to like make a living writing essays. Some people can do it, but I mean, is this your form, or do you feel like you you have broader interests in the literary realm? Um, I think this is definitely. Uh, the, the, what, the form I'm drawn to most. I mean, the first thing I ever had published was an essay, um, and it just seems to be, yeah, where where I'm most comfortable. And, and but the essay is, is uh, I feel like it's an incredibly durable 
um, sort of flexible form. Um, and yeah, I, but, but that, that's not to say I only ever want to write essays for the rest of my life, but I, I think I would, especially given the experience of writing this book was, was, uh, really rewarding and, um, um, yeah, just uh, expansive for me. And so I, I want to continue with the essay, um, for, for a little while at least and, and just get better and, and, and try and do better. Um, well, so what and, else though? Would it be like a novel? Do you want to write a screenplay since you have such a, um, you know, a <laughs> film background? Um, no, I think maybe even, you know, the, the only other thing I'd be thinking of at this point would be maybe some, a, a longer, like a book form, you know, nonfiction, um, uh, you know, just something like a big essay. <laughs> right. um, yeah, I, I've tried. You know, I try fiction. Fiction is sort of like the exercise I I, I turn to when I really hate myself and just want to <laughs> <laughs> prove how terrible I am, it's or like, at least. Um, what's the religion? You know. What's the religion where they whip themselves? You know, what I'm <laughs> that might be Catholicism. Yeah, like that that like, might be my religion. That's, yeah, I think that's me too. I was raised Catholic, so. <laughs> Were you? Yeah. I'm uh, recovering slowly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and, and actually, um, you, I, I have got a couple, well, I've got at least one magazine assignment and, and I've, I have heard from a couple editors and that's been really, really nice. Um, if any, I like, can I interrupt real quick? If any editors, yeah. if any editors are listening and I know you are, you should hire her. You should hire Michelle. <laughs> Thanks, Brad. Yeah. <laughs> I could use an advocate. This is what I've needed all these years. Yeah. It's sort of like you have to write the book before you get the calls. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, it's, a, it's a jungle, definitely. Um, I never knew how to get magazine work. <laughs> you know, that always seemed like the goal, but I had no idea how to get there. Well, and once it's like, you know, it's sort of like what happened to you earlier in your career with the film criticism is like once you get one and you meet a few people and then it's, you know, then it becomes a little bit easier, hopefully, and people, mm. you know, in theory anyway. But, in theory. Um, you know, you mentioned the Lillian Ross book on your nightstand. You mentioned the fact that you might want to write like a book length nonfiction um, uh, work of nonfiction. You have to have some ideas of what that would be. Can you give us any hints? Tell me it's film related. I want to read a book of yours where you're like. <laughs> on a film set or like, you know, like living with James Cameron in the woods for a year. Oh my God. It'd be terrifying. <laughs> what kind of, I don't think that, that would be more of a genre yeah. fiction book. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't have a, yeah, I, 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 I wish I could tell you that I have a big book idea at the moment. Um, but I don't, I know, Again, I'm going to mention my friend Steve, and he's going to love that. But he's writing. I mean, he's working on a, a, a film adaptation of of Happy Baby, his book. And he's already said to me, like, "Why don't you come and onto the set, and you can because they're going to shoot in a month or two, and and you can write about it." <laughs> and it's, I'm I'm sort of intrigued by that, you know, just so, because I mean, especially reading this book picture, it's it's uh, the, the way films are made now. It, it's so different and yet probably you know so much the same so much is, is still the same um it's a very strange los angeles and hollywood and the way movies work i mean and you know a lot of these independent films are getting made 
pretty well outside the system. But eventually, oh, yeah. eventually, when it comes to distribution and stuff, there has to be a, a union between you know entrenched uh, ways of doing things and like the the new way of doing things. But there's a lot of change happening, and then. On the other side of the coin where, uh, you know, the big budget movies get made and films get distributed into theaters and things make their way on the television, I, you know, I'm certainly no expert, but it, as big as Los Angeles is, you sort of get the feeling after a while that there's really only like 10 people in town who make any real decisions. You know, like, wow. I mean, I don't know. It just, it seems like it's really a small town in a sense or something, Yeah. you know, and that there's... I don't know. It, it, the, reason, well, the reason it feels like it's a mystery how things get made is because there aren't that many people who can get things actually made or can like actually like push a button and say go. You know? Right. So there's this, you know, polarization where you have the ten people in Hollywood and then you have everyone else just trying to cobble together, <laughs> you know, what they need um, and, and to make a movie and then hoping for the best, I guess. Yeah. Well, and I, but I love the idea that you can raise money because I know, um, you know, uh, Stephen uh, was raising money via Kickstarter for his Kickstarter. film mm -hmm. and got the money. And like now they're in pre-production and I mean, I'm getting, I, I uh, threw a few dollars, you know, towards the production or whatever. Just oh, nice. Well, no, I mean, I love seeing people. I mean, I'm, I'm a sucker for Kickstarter. I shouldn't say, this. I shouldn't say this on the air because now everyone's going to be sending me their <laughs> Yeah, by the way. <laughs> but no, but I understand what it's like to try to get something off the ground because I've got all these like harebrained ideas and have tried, you know, various things through the years. And I love it when people have the gumption to like try and to just go mm -hmm. do stuff. And so it's nice to support, I think. And I think we should all support each other when we try uh, to do stuff like that. But. You know. Well, the crazy thing is, like, Kickstarter, is, that's not even that uncommon now for filmmakers to, to, I mean, I've seen a number of festival films that were, you know, funded through Kickstarter. It's, it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, I agree with what you're saying, but at the same time, I don't think it's a, it's a sustainable, <laughs> like a, you know, it, model for, for, for the arts, you know? What is the model? I mean, cause well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know, but I, that, that doesn't seem. You mean you didn't come here with an answer to that question? Well, <laughs> wait. Let me consult my notes. <laughs> I mean, but when you think about when, what about when when something like um, Veronica Mars, you know, when they get in on the Kickstarter thing and raise two million dollars in a single day? Um, that almost I, felt that almost felt perverse, just because Veronica Mars is like created by like one of these bigger entities, and it was like right. So now it's not like not only are we going to be the fans of the show who chatter about it on social media, but we're also going to bankroll it, and it's like <laughs> you know, it well, felt, it's a strange thing, right? Yeah. And the other thing about Kickstarter is, is those rewards that get built into it. I mean, this is what I'm interested in, in a lot of these the way you know the way smaller films come together is the, and again, this is pro it's probably just a different version of what's always happened, but. Um, investors, you know, large and small, tend to get perks of some sort, you know, like whether whether it's like a walk-on role or, or whether, I mean, I know someone who made a film, you know, who, who had a fairly large donation made, um, you know, who really insisted on a, on a, um, on a part in the film and a scene with the, with the star and blah, blah, blah. It's sort of like <laughs> these compromises <laughs> that get built into the, into the funding, um, matrix or whatever. 
I don't know. I it's never, tricky. you know what? I've I've done a ton of Kickstarters, and uh, you know, I shouldn't make myself sound too much like a like Daddy Warbucks. It's like fifty. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I, I put down like I put down like fifty bucks or twenty five bucks or whatever, but I never take the I never take the prize. It's like I don't want I don't want the T shirt or like the the poster. You know, like don't worry about it. Just go make. You the don't. Movie. No, I don't care. Okay. I mean, if I was donating like ten grand or something, then. I would want like something, you know, but I don't, I'm not there yet in terms of my, yeah. my large S. <laughs> Where are you? Once the, <laughs> Just so we know. Yeah. I'm at like the $25 to $50. <laughs> For those of you out there, I'm, uh, I can microfinance your, uh, you know, $100 documentary. <laughs> You'd be a major investor at that point. Yeah. Too. Yeah, exactly. Core executive producer. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, it's been, it's been great talking with you. I appreciate, uh, all the time and congratulations on the collection and, uh, you know, good luck with future stuff for what it's worth. I think you've got some good things in store. Thank you, Brad. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. There you go. That is the program. That is Michelle Orange. Go get her book, her essay collection. It's called This is Running for Your Life and it is available now from Farrar, Strauss and Giroux. You can find Michelle online at michelleorange.com. She's on Twitter, at Michelle Orange, and I believe you can find her on the Facebook as well. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, just as a technicality, the song that played underneath my tweets was a song called uh, The Silver Ball by Brian Eno. That is not a Kill Rockstars song. Uh, don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app. It's available for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's free, and it is the very best way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can organize your favorites. You can access premium content and the full archives, etc. So please get the app if you haven't done that already. Okay, uh, if you're going to be in L.A. on Thursday, April 18th, come out. Join us at Molly Malone's for the Nervous Breakdown Literary Experience. Uh, I'm a little bit confused about what to wear, which is common for me. I actually think about this. I have to host the event. I have to stand on stage and introduce people and so on. Uh, so uh, my mind tends to uh, get confused about this, like what to wear, what's appropriate. Should I be wearing something semi-formal? I don't know. I always end up wearing uh, a t-shirt or whatever, but I always think about wearing something uh, very festive and possibly formal or even outlandish for some reason. Please remember that Catherine Mansfield died at age 35 and that Albert Einstein referred to Gandhi as, quote, the one truly great political figure of our age, end quote. That's it for now. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for spreading the word. I'll be back again in just a few days with another, actually I'll be back in two days on Wednesday with another author, another writer, another conversation, and so on. In the meantime, uh, I hope you will enjoy uh, this closing music, this closing number. I hope you will headbang ever so slightly as you sit there listening to its driving rhythm. (laughs) 